I must have drawn the short straw because I was given the longest sermon passage in the history of sermon passages, Genesis 6 through 8. What are we going to do with that in the next 90 minutes? I don't know, but we'll do our best to get through this story. We have a very sobering story here, a story that challenges our nursery rhymes and the decorations that so many of us have used with our children, thinking that this story is somehow a cutesy little fable that can be used to decorate a child's room. But if only the child knew about the terror and horror of the story, they might stay awake at night wondering why you would plant them in a place of such fear and dread. The story of Noah and the flood is not a cute story that can be told with smiles on our faces as if it were simply a kid's tale. It's a story that must be told with the full weight of God's grief and sorrow. For that is how the story is framed. It's introduced to us with a God who is grieving, a God who regrets making man on the earth. A story with a God whose heart is vexed, who has sighed a sigh of lament as he looks upon the condition of the world. That for generations he has given man one second chance after another. And he has lavished his mercy upon people, spared their lives again and again, sustained them with his providence, not wiped them from the face of the earth. And what does he get in return for all of his love and kindness towards man? He gets mankind shaking their fists to heaven, raging against God, neglecting him, turning their backs to him, pursuing their own things. And after generations, generations of God's display of kindness to mankind, his patience reaches an end. There is a limit to the grace of God and the mercy of God, as this story tells us. And then God acts decisively against his creatures. And notice he doesn't do it joyfully. He does it with grief and anguish in his heart. For God takes no delight in the death of sinners. And yet, sometimes the death of sinners is required because of the justice of God. And so for anyone who thinks, oh, yes, I know the story of Noah and the flood. It's a cute cartoon. My kids love the songs. Who built the ark? Noah, Noah. Who built the ark? Brother Noah built the ark. Well, I hope to take some of the humor out of this story for you today by highlighting for you the terrible, horrible, no good, and very bad things we see in this story. But there's a silver lining to the dark cloud of the flood. In fact, there is a rainbow that comes at the end, and we'll get there in due course. I asked you this week, what does a tulip have to do with the story of the flood? And I hope that by the end of this sermon, you will see that it has much to do with it in every way. There is a strand of Christian tradition and theology that likes to use a tulip as a short form, shorthand for crucial beliefs or doctrines of the faith. And you can see those things lined out for us in this story. And I'll try to point them out to you in subtle ways throughout the telling of this story today. Let's begin in the beginning with chapter 6. What do we have here? We have God... Looking upon mankind, 
And what does he see? What God sees is the total depravity and the radical corruption of mankind. He describes it perhaps not in ways that you would, but he describes it in these ways when he talks about the, the, um, the sexual confusion and the physical violence and the marital corruption that was taking place in that day. Those are the three things he highlights. Why? Because those things strike at the, the vitals of humankind made in the image and likeness of God. Man had taken the gifts of God provided to them by God and used them against God and against each other. So as God looks upon the world and he sees the violence and the bloodshed, the wickedness of man, and sees that at the heart of man are intentions that are evil. The intentions of the heart of man are evil all the time. And so God's not saying, well... They meant well. They just did the wrong thing. No, he gets to the heart of the matter and says, no, they intended to do the wrong thing. And they intend to do even more wrong things. And so the scripture says to us that God breathed a sigh of lament and that his heart was vexed that he had made man on the earth. He was grieved and sorrowful over the condition of man and his role in making man in the first place. This is not in the Hebrew, but if you want to understand what this means, sigh of lament and vexed at heart, it means that God performs the first cosmic face palm and head shake. He can't believe what he's watching. He can't believe what he's seeing and just how bad people have become. And it is because of this total depravity and radical corruption of man that God determines to take action against it, that God determines that he is going to put an end to it all. He says he's going to put an end to all flesh, including mankind. And it's because of mankind and mankind's sin that even innocent animals are going to suffer and perish. In other words, what God has said here is he's going to blot man out, right? He's going to Blot it out. Blot out what man has done. Blot out all flesh. Blot out the sin that man has committed. He is going to decreate the world. A few weeks ago, we saw the beauty and the majesty of creation and how everything God made was right and good and very good when he made woman. But now we see that God has determined to decreate the world, to uncreate what he has created and to turn it all back into a watery chaos. And in the midst of all of this sorrow and grief of God, believe it or not, he actually finds comfort. And where does he find comfort? He finds comfort in a man named Noah, whose name means comfort. And why does he find comfort in Noah? Well, he finds comfort in Noah because Noah is like a light shining in a dark place. Unlike everyone in his generation, unlike those living around him, Noah is a blameless man. He is a righteous man. He is a man who, in the tradition of Seth, is calling upon the name of the Lord. He is a man who, in the tradition of Enoch, who walked with God and was no more, is a preacher of righteousness. His ministry is not very fruitful. Apparently, the only converts, the only followers, the only ones who adhere to his message are his own family members. The rest of the world around him is opposed. 
But here is a man who brings comfort to the heart of God in the midst of God's grief because he finds in Noah a man who is doing what God had called man to do, to walk before his face, to fulfill his mandate, to call upon his name in worship. And Noah is doing that thing. And he's doing it against all odds, swimming against the tide, going upstream. Noah dwells in the midst of this crooked and depraved generation. And yet somehow, by God's grace, because he found favor in the eyes of the Lord, he is able to withstand the pressures of the world around him. He is able to continue shining like a light in a dark place. Now, Noah is not a sinless man. Noah is simply a blameless man. He's declared right by God, by grace, through faith, the same way you are. He's not someone who is flawless in his life. He's not someone who has avoided the trappings of sin. Noah himself has sinned. In fact, as a son of Adam, he is a sinner. You know the rhyme. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. But we all sinned in Adam, and yet we all sinned in our own way apart from Adam. We're all sinners, just like Noah. And yet Noah brings comfort to the heart of God because here is a sinner that is seeking the face of God in his own life and in his generation. And so God draws near to Noah who has found grace, has found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord God made a covenant with Noah. Now keep that in mind. He makes a covenant with Noah, not with just anyone and everyone. He makes a covenant with Noah. He shares with Noah his purpose and his plan. This is how God relates to his friends. He tells them the secrets of his heart. And so God shares with Noah the secret of his heart, or to use the language of the text, God shares with Noah the intentions of his heart to destroy all flesh. Now imagine when Noah first hears this message, that God says, I'm going to wipe out all flesh, all mankind, all the animals from the face of the earth. Noah is going to hear that message, and he's going to insert himself into the all. Like, I'm in that category of part of the all that are going to be wiped out. Perhaps at that moment, his heart was grieved and he regretted that he had ever been made to walk on the face of the earth. But then God says, but not you, Noah. He makes a covenant with Noah, promise that he's going to take care of him. He's going to save him. He's going to preserve his life and bring him all the way to the other side of this judgment. The promise is made with Noah and with his household. And then God says to Noah, Make yourself an ark. Make yourself an ark. Now, if you're like me, if you're old enough, you probably heard Bill Cosby take um, uh, the story of Noah and do a comedy routine on it, which was hilarious, but not actually true. It was misguided in the way that comics can often misguide, because he talks about the way Noah might have argued or debated with God, negotiated the terms of the flood and the ark. You've also heard pastors through the years, and I used to be one of them, who would say, Noah heard this news about making the ark, and he immediately went out and started recruiting his neighbors to help him build the ark because it was such a massive project. 
He was also trying to convince them they should get on this ark because a flood was coming. And so this is the way we approach stories like this. And we think that Noah, a preacher of righteousness, certainly went out and started telling the people of his generation, you got to repent and believe the gospel. Judgment's coming. Help me build this ark. This will be our safe passage through the storm that's coming. But I want to encourage you to go back and reread the story and you'll see that that is not what was taking place here. You see, God has given Noah the dimensions of the ark. The ark is to be of a certain size, a certain shape. There are certain specifications. In other words, what God has told Noah is that seating on the ark is limited. It is not unlimited. It is not big enough for all of humanity to get on board. It's not big enough for every creature under heaven that walks on the face of the earth to get on board. So it would be futile for Noah to go about preaching to his generation, hey, everybody, you need to get on board with this building project that I'm, that I'm spearheading. Why? Because judgment's coming, and there's room enough for all of us. Just get on, get your ticket punched. That is not at all what's happening here. God has told Noah, I'm going to destroy all mankind. I'm wiping everyone out except for you. So you build yourself an ark. And you get on the ark with the animals I'm going to send your way. We're going to preserve humanity and creation and start all over again when I recreate the world on the other side of this judgment. And so Noah's given a certain time length, 120 years to do this. Now, if he was preaching as a preacher of righteousness, what might he have preached in those days? He's going to preach righteousness, but a part of preaching righteousness isn't always preaching what we might call the gospel of salvation. Preaching righteousness sometimes means preaching the wrath of God and the coming judgment. In my imagination, Noah is out building the ark and his neighbors are scoffing at him and mocking him and making fun of him. And all the while he's building the ark, he's preaching what? He's preaching the righteousness of God over against the wickedness of man. He's preaching against the sinfulness of his generation. He's preaching that the Lord God will not struggle with you forever. The Spirit of God will not keep wrestling with all of you His grace and patience have reached an end. He is going to bring judgment upon the world. Why? Because you refuse to turn and trust in him. You insist on going your own way. He is going to give you what you want. He's going to turn you over to your passions and pleasures and give you the due penalty for your sin at the end of all of this. That's the kind of preaching Noah was doing. He's a doomsday prophet expressing the grief and the sorrow of God to a hostile and indifferent generation. It's hard for us to hear that, isn't it? We think all preaching should be about how people should get saved. All preaching should be about the grace and the mercy of God all the time and only all the time. And yet here is a preacher of righteousness who has been told the secrets of God's intention to destroy mankind. And what is he to say? Uh, You need to lighten up, Lord. You need to take it easy. I mean, we are but flesh, dust and ashes. Maybe you should give us another chance. 
on top of all the other chances you've already given us. Why do you have to be so mean-spirited? If Noah's not careful, if he goes about preaching in his own way, he's going to be preaching in a way that contradicts what God has told him. Or he's going to be preaching in a way where he's trying to change God's mind about what God has determined to do. As if God was wrong and Noah is right. But Noah is preaching the truth to his generation. God is going to uncreate the world. There will be casualties. You will be the casualties. Because God is going to give you what you have been working for. He's going to pay you the wages that you have earned. And the wages of your sin is death. In the meantime, Noah has to keep building the ark, doesn't he? Why does he build the ark? Now, we have all kinds of things, as I referenced earlier, all kinds of reasons we believe Noah built the ark. But the Hebrew writer, the Holy Spirit, tells us why Noah built the ark. Hebrews 11.7 says that in reverent fear, Noah built the ark to save his family and to condemn the world. Those are the two reasons the Holy Spirit gave us for why Noah built the ark. So it doesn't do us any good to try to imagine other reasons that might fit in there. These are the reasons. God said, Noah, I'm going to destroy the world with a flood. You need to make yourself an ark. And in holy fear, that's what Noah did. Why? Because he's going to save his family and at the same time condemn the world. Does that make Noah the judge and the savior? No, not at all. It makes God the savior and the judge. And Noah is simply living in light of the truth of who God is. So he builds an ark to save his family. Now imagine the trust that goes into this, right? The trust to agree with God's assessment of the world around you. The trust to agree that it's actually God speaking to you about these things. The trust that God has given you a plan to build something that will bring about your salvation and the condemnation of the world. You talk about holy fear, the reverence and the awe that is wrapped up in this. Perhaps even the grief and the sorrow that he felt as he's working on this ark and building this vessel that will preserve life for himself and for for the other creatures. But this is not a time to be celebrating. This wasn't a time for Noah to be sticking it to other people, rubbing it in their faces. He's going to lose neighbors and friends. They're going to perish in the flood. He's going to lose family members. He's living on an island. He's isolated from the rest of the world around him. He's living in contradistinction to everyone else. The antithesis has been marked out. And on that day when Noah finally enters the ark, it is the Lord God that shuts the door and seals him inside the ark. It is the Lord God who preserves him. And not only preserves him in the, in the building of the ark, the construction of the ark, but preserves him on the day he enters the ark and then through the course of the flood. He is signed, sealed, and secured in the ark that he has made. And the Lord brings him all the way to the other side of the flood, preserving his life, preserving the life of his saints. 
that he has promised to take care of Noah and he keeps his word. Now, the apostles comment on this. Christ as well. Jesus says that in the days of Noah, people were giving and taking in marriage. People were living their lives as usual. They were just going about business, not concerning themselves with anything Noah might have preached, not worried about the warnings, not concerned at all about the coming judgment, but living their life as if life will always roll on as it has been. In other words, they were not looking up. They were not looking out. They were looking down and looking in at their own things. The Apostle Peter tells us that in the flood, which corresponds to baptism, only eight people were saved. He points out in 2 Peter 2 that what this tells us is that God knows how to draw a clear distinction between those he intends to save and those he intends not to save, those he intends to condemn. And Noah lived in a world where God had marked that distinction. On the day he entered the ark with his family, that was it. It's just the eight of us. What's going to happen on the other side of this, we don't yet know, but God has promised to preserve our lives and bring us to the other side. And God did that. The flood water corresponds to baptism that now saves you also. So the Apostle Peter takes your story and my story and he weaves it into the story of Noah and his family and the flood. Not because we are waiting for another flood to come upon us and wipe out the world, but because we are living in light of the judgment of God every day. We're living in light of God's promise to take care of sin once and for all every day. We are told that the next judgment will not be a judgment of water, but a judgment of fire. And where you are when the judgment comes matters very much to you. It matters very much existentially to you and to your family. And where must you be? You must be in the true and better ark, which is Christ Jesus. You see, when Noah entered the ark, he was in a shadowy way, uniting himself to Christ crucified. And as the waters of judgment rose up to the neck of Christ at the cross, Noah is united to Christ in that judgment. Why was he spared? Because he's united to Christ. Why was he lifted up above the flood? Because he was united to Christ. He was raised up above the judgment by the blessing and promise of God, same as you are. Why will you be spared the judgment when the judgment comes? Why will you be spared the fiery wrath of God when that day comes? Because you are united to Christ in baptism. And water puts out fire. You're united to Christ in baptism. Which means you are united to his crucifixion and to his resurrection. You will be lifted up above the judgment. About 30 years ago, Shannon and I went camping. We'd only been married a few months. A friend of ours felt sorry for us. We were poor newlyweds and poor students at the same time. It's a double whammy. 
And he said, I think you guys need some time away. And so he gave us some money and said, go to Riodosa, rent a cabin, spend a weekend. And Shannon said to me, what we should do is buy camping equipment. So any weekend we can go out and not have to worry about a cabin. I agreed. Great idea. We bought camping equipment. We went up to Palo Duro Canyon, uh, just south of Amarillo. We hiked around the first day, and we came across a little, a little brook where there was a sign that said, swim at your own risk. We took a picture of the sign, mocking it. Said, Why would they say this? It must be a practical joke. There was just a brook that you could step over. No big deal. And we went up the side of the canyon and back down and later that evening to our campsite, which was just on the edge of that little brook. About, the brook was about 10 feet below. Somewhere around midnight, Shannon nudges me and says, hey, it seems it's wet in here. What's going on? And it had been raining, flash flood. I open the tent and look out, and all I see is a field of water all around our tent. We climbed out of the tent, moved over to our car up at the hill, thinking this is our escape, get in the vehicle, drive away. But as soon as we got in, the car started floating away. Our salvation was to get out of the car. And to follow the voice of a man in the darkness, waving a light up on a hill, calling us out of the flood up to the hilltop. I've thought back on that story many times as the day that I almost lost my wife. And she was entangled in the tent as we tried to escape. It's the day we were almost swept away in our car because we thought it was important to be in the car. Do you know what our salvation was? Leaving everything behind. All those precious things, all those gadgets, the tent, the neat books, all the stuff that we thought was so precious, leave it behind. Lose it all and gain what? Your life. That's what Noah did. You leave it all. You become a fool for Christ in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation. There is nothing in this world worth hanging on to so much that it becomes an anchor around your neck to drag you to the abyss. Let it go. Let it go. You're baptized Christians, united to Christ. In him is your salvation. He is the one you are to trust. He is the one who has authority over all these creatures, over evil, over darkness, over the judgment. And he is the one who knows the difference between condemning some and saving others. And if you and your household would be saved, you must be baptized into Christ. You must put your trust in him. And you must ride out any storm that comes your way in Christ and in Christ alone. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, let us pray.